Now, what would be the odds that that was happening again, that that wasn't a new report? Was that a new report or an old report? That's what I'm asking. Is it a new report or an old report? Is that a new report? Well, we don't know. When a seasoned sports fan teams up with a millennial, opinions may vary, but the debates assuredly won't disappoint. Check your sources. It's New Report, Old Report. Here's your hosts, John Lund and Al Renato. Well, Al, another exciting week in athletics. A familiar face is once again the Super Bowl champions of the world. The dust has settled from some of the more massive trades in the NBA that we've seen in years' time. College basketball continues to heat up as we get closer and closer to March. And pitchers and catchers, bigger bases, silly rules that are going to be implemented as permanent instead of just passes in the wind. We'll get to all of it, of course, but nothing circles the wagons quite like the National Football League and back atop the NFL world, the Kansas City Chiefs, who won their second Super Bowl in four years, defeating the mighty Philadelphia Eagles, 38-35, a last field goal by the Kansas City Chiefs becomes the game winner, and unfortunately, a controversial call Mars, one of the most exciting games that we've seen in a long time, a game that seemed pegged to go down to the wire, a game that we thought would be one of the tops of all time, depending on what would happen in the game's last couple minutes. One yellow flag kind of takes the air out of the balloon, unfortunately, all but handing the game to the Kansas City Chiefs, who, of course, were deserving to win it. It just lost its luster somewhat at the end. Very deflating to feel like we were about to get an epic. Still a great game, no question about it, but not as potentially epic as it could be. Patrick Mahomes, his second Super Bowl MVP to go along with his second MVP in the National Football League. Stories are already being written about the epicness of his career despite just starting for five seasons in the NFL and what a valiant effort it was by Jalen Hurts in a losing effort in the Super Bowl. Some even said he might have deserved the MVP, a la Jerry West, despite it being a loss. So we had an exciting game like we thought it would be. It did come down to the wire. Unfortunately, it'll be remembered for the, was it a hold? Was it not a hold? Should they have thrown a flag? And that kind of takes away a little bit from the game. But shout out once more to Kansas City, who are showing people, that perhaps they were disrespected, as Travis Kelsey said at the parade. No one believed in us for this year, but we are atop the NFL world. I don't know if I'd go that far, but it certainly was an impressive run through the postseason with Patrick Mahomes dealing with injuries, with the core that was left behind at the wide receiver position, on the line, etc. They go through some very good teams, and they're the champions of the world. Indeed they are, Johnny. So we welcome aboard all our uh, friends, listeners. Uh who have been with us throughout the duration of this podcast as we finish up the NFL season in shocking fashion, quite frankly, as a massive one-and-a-half-point underdog, uh, a a downtrodden franchise, scraping themselves up off the mat, pulling themselves up 
from their bootstraps. Someone, goodness gracious, no one thought anyone would be here after being merely a one seed in the AFC and playing every playoff game at home. But somehow, some way, they managed to struggle through and they shocked the world. They stunned us all. Miracle of miracles. The Kansas City Chiefs, despite all those naysayers, all those who thought they said it can't be done, Two championships in four years? How is this possible? With the best quarterback in football? Can't be done. Right? You lost a couple of guys from your wide receiver court? Can't do it. A coach who's an offensive genius? I don't think that's going to be good enough. Uh, I mean, it's laughable. It really is. It insults our intelligence, the way they make themselves out to be this disrespected franchise, simply because people thought they may have a tough road to hoe this year because they lost some key guys. Did anybody say in their right mind, Chiefs are dead? Long live who? Long live who? Long live who? The Rams, who were a one-year wonder with half their franchise gone to free agency, retirement, injury? I don't think so. Did we say long live the Bengals? Well, everybody got on the Bengals train because everybody loves Joe B. And look, they got right back where they were last year. And they went down to a, a, a final possession game last year. They beat the Chiefs in overtime in their building. And this year they were about to do it again. Uh, and then Chiefs came through with a big sack and a terrible penalty. And lo and behold, they kick a field goal in the last play of the game. And uh, you know, two weeks later, they take on the best team in the NFC with their young quarterback. And they're down 10 points at halftime. And they come out with their banged up back with their quarterback who looks like he's playing on one leg. I mean, we may, do we, we may have to amputate at halftime the way he was dragging that leg around. Goodness gracious. But heroic effort came out, played incredibly well. Offensive line of the Chiefs did an admirable job. They shut down that big pass rush. No sacks, none. Count them, zip, zero. And you know, despite that incredibly aggravated ankle sprain. Uh, Mahomes Magic was able to scramble away from trouble, had two huge scrambles. Uh, the first one led to a touchdown. The second one led to the game-winning field goal. Kudos to him. He staved off the comers. Now, Josh Allen? I don't think so. Joe B? No, sir. There's only one best quarterback in football. There's only one best player alive, and it's Patrick Mahomes. And he's on the Kansas City Chiefs, and along with a coach who was an absolute offensive genius. Make no mistake about it. The star of that game, besides Patrick Mahomes in the offensive line, was the creativity of Andy Reid in the second half, who with his halftime adjustments, uh, their offense was unstoppable in the second half. The Philadelphia defense was completely confused in the secondary. Again, they not only did a great job protecting against the pass, they ran the ball effectively with their young rookie running back, the tough guy who runs hard, seventh-round pick, who was tremendous. He was the best running back on the field. Uh, Philly did not run the ball well. I thought they got away from the run too much. Now, most of their running game was Jalen Hurts, so maybe Kansas City made adjustments to defend against that, but we didn't see it much, nor did we see too much you know, of the standard running game using their backs, you know, using Sanders. Uh, they threw it a lot, and they played really well. And, oh, by the way, the Philadelphia offense outscored the Kansas City offense. But there was one huge gaffe on third and a foot when they were ready for another quarterback sneak 
at 14-7 to continue with the drive. Procedure penalty turns third and a foot into third and five. Uh, an ill-advised, I guess it was a quarterback draw. It looked like it. And Mahomes is caught trying to change hands with the football. Fumbles it. Takes a nice bounce. Scoop and score. All of a sudden, it's 14 all. Now, they still took a 24-14 lead into halftime. And we're in great shape. And the key to me, stop of the game, would have been the first one out of the half. They couldn't get it. 24-21, new game. They never stopped the Chiefs the rest of the way. And Chiefs should be commended. They're the best team. They've got the best player. But you know, stop telling us between their play-by-play announcer and Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey, who's a great player, but just never shuts up. And all he ever does is tell us how nobody believes in the Chiefs outside of Kansas City. I mean, you, who are you talking to? I mean, you're spitting in the wind, dude. Nobody thinks that. Nobody believes that. What do we believe? We believe it's hard to get there again. We believe it's hard to repeat. You said you were going to run it back. You didn't. Now you say you're going to be back again. Well, maybe you will. Let's see. You're not a dynasty yet, despite what our friend Nick Wright says. We love him. But you got to repeat to be a dynasty. Can't win every other year. Can't win two and four years. If you win five and ten years, pretty close to a dynasty. But in my mind, you got to repeat. So let's see what they do next year, beginning of the offseason. Again, best team in the AFC, best team in the NFC. The best team this past Sunday was the team in the AFC. No turnovers uh, versus the one huge one, which was obviously at least a seven-point swing. Outcome determinative? Maybe, maybe not. Like I said, they had the 10-point lead. Unfortunately, as feared, the game was absolutely marred by a dastardly, unforgivable sin call. The holding call, the one we always dread on third and long, it comes out at the end of the play when nobody sees it, when the announcers didn't call it, and it results in an automatic first down. And worse here, it was not outcome determinative because the Chiefs were going to line up for a field goal regardless. But even though it was outcome determinative, it determined the final outcome because of circumstances with the clock and timeouts, it allowed the Chiefs to try not to score, kill the clock, and kick the field goal on the second last play of the game. Was it a hold? He grabbed him. So if you want to call that technically a hold, he grabbed him, call it a hold. All officials in all sports must have a sense of time and place and environment. And when you have refereed a game and officiated a game and let them play the entire game, letting little brushes and contacts, specifically these two guys earlier in the game, you know, a clear grab and interference penalty uh, on the same play, on the same player, against the same player, on third down wasn't called. Not that that shouldn't have been called. I would have no problem if that was called. It wasn't. And they let receivers battle for balls against defensive backs. There wasn't, you know, this huge array of flags, offensive holding, illegal contacts, blocks in the back. They let them go. So now you're going to call this? You're going to call this little grab? And I, and I don't care if it's a stop and go route. I don't care if it's a reverse your field route. I don't care what kind of route it is. It doesn't matter. All right? It was well before 
the throw. It was well before he threw the ball. I know you're throwing it to his spot. And he impeded him getting there 25 yards earlier. But the bottom line is, you know, that's a nickel and dimer. And it's not one you call. And having a sense of, you know, you're not a moron. You're not in a vacuum. You know where you are. You know it's third down. You know it's eight yards to go. You know they got one timeout left. You know, if you call it, game's over. Game's over. They called it. It cheated non-Chief fans, which are the Eagle fans and the rest of the world who just want to see a great game and an exciting finish. Uh, you know, one of the great anti-one of the great anti-climaxes in the history of the world, uh, certainly the sports world, when we didn't get to see the last minute and 20 seconds, minute and a half or so, to see what Jalen Hurts could do to get his team in the field goal range or maybe even win it. Uh, but certainly the former being a distinct possibility. And, uh, you know, bottom line is the Chiefs are the champs. So got to live with bad calls. The Eagles were very um, fair about it after the game. They didn't bitch. They didn't complain. Bradbury said, I held him. And uh, Nick Sirianni said, one penalty doesn't, one play doesn't determine the outcome. The whole series of plays that go the entire game. He said they were the better team. They deserved to win. Hats off to him for showing some class. Um, his defensive coordinator was completely outcoached in the second half by Andy Reid. And um, you know, now the offseason begins in the quarterback carousel. But yes, shockingly, unexpectedly, somehow, some way, the Chiefs struggled through. They snuck by the Jags at home. Uh, they beat, ironically, uh, not in a bad call, but on a flag uh, to put them in the field goal range uh, on the last play of the game to go to the Super Bowl against the Bengals and then on the heels of uh, a hideous, what should have been non-call, uh, they clinched the game with what was virtually a game-ending field goal. Field goal would have been a little longer, about 32 yards. I'm sure he probably would have made it. But the biggest thing is, obviously, you had negated any possibility that the Eagles could have made a comeback and gotten in the scoring position that last minute, which would have been fun to see. It's just sports fan nature to have that way of thinking at the end of games where you want the players to just go out and play. That's why the phrase, let them play, is used so much at the end of games. You don't want things decided by a penalty or a foul, or an out, or a replay review, you'd rather just see the players fight it out. It cuts the heart and the soul right out of the game. That's what it does. It sucks the wind out of the game. That's what it did. Because growing up, when you first fall in love with sports, you're playing outside with your buddies, you're not getting a call there in a sense. If somebody tugs at you a little bit, when you're playing football like that, you just keep running. And if it falls incomplete, you might have some choice words, but that's it. You keep going. The plays continue. You don't stop the game and cause a fuss where let's redo the play. You held me. You just let it go, man. That's how it is. I, I texted our friend, the great Nick Wright, the biggest Kansas City Chief fan on the planet, who, of course, is proclaiming dynasty. And I said to him, you know, I asked him if the, uh, the official was going to get a Super Bowl ring. And said it was an indefensible call. And then I congratulated him. He said, complaining about the officiating is beneath you. I said, I'm not complaining about the officiating because, you know, it resulted in the Chiefs winning. 
the better team won. They had the best with the best player in the world, and he played like the best player in the world, and he's exactly that. I can't stand that call anytime, any place, anywhere in that spot. I was pretty neutral in this game. I just wanted to see a really good game. I saw it, and I was ready for the last gasp of this terrific game, and that call ruined it. And that call sucked the wind and took the heart out of the game. I can't stand to see that call, period, end of story, in that game, in that spot. It just can't happen. And unfortunately, it did. It just seems like we end up too often in that late game scenario where it's a third and long or you're watching a basketball game and the clock's running down. But more often in football, it's these last-minute plays where the defense comes up with a stop, and instead of being able to celebrate that moment, you have to take the five or six seconds and look around to make sure there's no flag. And so often there is. A ball gets thrown into no-man's land, and you're thinking, what a great play by the defense, and then all of a sudden you see the little graphic at the bottom, flag, and roughing the, flag the was, passer, holding. The flag, was, the flag was thrown by the official in the end zone who had the place directly in front of him, you know, 30 yards down the field. And I understand he saw the grab impeding the progress. And that's why he throws it. Uh, but, you know, he didn't throw it immediately, which is the other thing I always have a problem with. Right. If it's a, throw the flag. Right. If it's a hold, when you see it, throw the flag. Don't wait until the ball is seven yards overthrown and say, okay, he held him. He couldn't get to that ball because he held him. I'm throwing the flag. If it's a hold, throw it when you see it. If it's not, put it in your pocket. And that's because these flags always come late. If it's a hold and you got to call it, call it. Don't sit on it and then call it when we think the play is fucking over. Was it a hold? Yeah. By the rule of the law, it was. It's not... Really, the hold, I don't know why the replay mostly got shown for the second part where he's already turned up the field and he kind of gets his jersey grab a little bit. The hold came before that when he was making his turn, when he pulled his jersey back, stopped him for a second. Correct. But in that moment, it was just, it sucked the air right out of the room. And for the game, I know there was penalties, not many, we didn't have to deal with much of that. There weren't any pass interferences. You mentioned the previous time they got tangled up. Nothing was called. They were letting these guys play, which was great. It's, Offenses were doing great. We were getting high scoring game. This was great. That's one of the reasons why it was such a good game to watch is because there was very, and no cheap shots. Everything was clean. Uh, I didn't see that there, were, there really wasn't one spot where you could say, throw a flag person to foul. These guys played hard. They played clean. They hit hard. And the, the, the biggest issue you had with the game, the only real issue you had with the game, other than the flag, was, of course, the equally as great, if not greater, travesty, because it went on for the entire game and marred the entire game, was the field, which was a disgrace. Brutal. You have the best athletes on the planet 
trying to figure out what shoes to wear so they can stand up in the most important game on the planet, in the sport, in the world. The whole world is watching, and these guys are sliding for life. Doesn't matter who it was. Quarterbacks, receivers, running backs, defensive backs, the the big guys. I I, I wonder, and I asked Willie Colon this on the morning man. He was using offensive linemen. I asked him as an offensive lineman if there was an advantage for the offensive lineman against the pass rush on a field like that. And he said, yeah, to some degree, but not not real big um, because, you know, we're going backwards against the pass rush. But, you know, to me, I really think you know, he's the player, so he would know better than me. You know, logically, I would think it would be somewhat disadvantageous to the pass rushers, especially where you've got two quarterbacks who are really good on their feet. But the bottom line is it, it, it was a mess, and I'm so tired of the game being there because they have had problems with this field in the past, and the fact that they were unable to rectify it for the Super Bowl, it, it's, I mean, the NFL's got egg on their face, and it, whether they care or not, they probably don't give a rat's ass. It's the third highest rated Super Bowl, I believe, of all time. Right. But the, the, the point is, it, it just took so much away from the game, watching these guys fighting like hell to stand up. We see that too, it seems, far too much in sports in any of the professional sports or even college where you get to what's supposed to be your championship, your final game. This used to happen to us and it's actually an incredibly smaller scale, but if you could follow me in high school for our district championship game, they changed where the championship was going to be played and they brought it to Mohegan sun arena in Wilkes-Barre where the triple a penguins play. So it's like a, it's a hockey arena. It's big. When you're in high school, as you remember, you're used to playing in these small gyms packed, Fans all on either side, behind the basket. It's an incredible atmosphere to watch basketball games in, and you get used to playing in those venues. Well, now you go to this huge stadium. They just throw a court in the middle of it, and there's no real way to gauge where the basket is because the seats are so far back behind the basket. There's no fans there to kind of help you out. It's like playing in an empty NBA arena when you're not used to doing so. So the shooting has been awful in these championship games. And that's the most important game you're going to play in the year. Why are you completely changing the environment for the players? And it's similar to sometimes when we see these fields that get used or these atmospheres that get used. You see it in the NCAA tournament. Now all of a sudden you're getting thrown into an NFL arena in Indianapolis where the court's raised and the seats are all different. Okay, Learn to play basketball. Hopefully your shot falls early and you don't start the first half not being able to hit anything because you're not used to shooting into those backdrops. When it's the most important game of the season, why are we making it so much more difficult on the players when they have to deal with things that are out of their control? And this was obvious right out of the gate. Jalen Hurts had to change his cleats in the second quarter. He had on new shoes. Why? Because he's falling all over the place. What are we doing? And oh, the they paint, had this, the they grass. had this problem with this field in the beginning of the year. Right. Fix it. You got you get, get grow some grass. They're so grow. fucking excited that they have that electronical base to it where they can move the grass into under the stands and then they have it come out so it could get some sun and then they move it back. Oh, it takes an hour for the field to get all the way under the That's all well and good. Nice bells and whistles. How's the actual grass? 
How's exactly. the field? I don't give a shit that you can move the stadium in and out. How's the grass? You had all off season to plant it, to sod it, to paint it, and it's garbage in the best game of the year. And as you said, the NFL's not going to give a shit. Look at the numbers. Third most watched television event ever. <laughs> where Who cares? Is, where is the sod father, George Tomo, when you need him? This is my last game in the National Football League, said the sod father. Well, he went out with quite the negative bang for his last go around when no one can figure out how to get footing on the field. Just miserable. It it was a total embarrassment. Total embarrassment. And of course, the argument, well, both teams are playing on the. Oh, no, no. Again, that doesn't change the determinant. They were all slipping all over the place. And, you know, but both teams said it afterwards. Uh, the Chiefs struggled and uh, you know, Philly said, hey, we, all, we both had to play on no excuses. But the point is, again, it, it, it took away from the game. It took away from these guys seeing them trying to perform at the highest level. And they did magnificent things. But how much, just think of how much better it could have been if they could have stood up regularly. Be nice, especially with two scrambling quarterbacks, fast wide receivers on both sides, running games that are trying to get going. I'm interested to see if you think we were sold a false bill of goods on what was the Philadelphia defense. Because the numbers will tell you for Super Bowls that if you have the number one defense coming in, you're most likely going to win the game. I don't have the exact number, but you have a great shot, and it mostly goes to those teams. No sacks, no turnovers, no interceptions, no fumbles. Patrick Mahomes in the second half, three touchdown drives and a field goal, scored on all of them. The reason the game was so close when the Eagles had the lead was because they did a great job of keeping Patrick Mahomes off the field. Off the field. What a concept, a novel concept for NFL teams. Maybe let's try to keep this guy off the field as much as we can. The trouble was for the Eagles offense, the running game was really just all Jalen Hurts. And that was another mm-hmm. aspect of the Eagles that was so well touted coming into this game, how great their running game was. Well, and aside remember, from Jalen Hurts, 45 yards total from the running backs. One of the reasons they were off the field also so long in the first half was right, Eagles score. Then comes uh, the Philly punt or the, the the one Kansas City punt. Right. All right. Philly's driving again. Then comes the fumble, the scoop and score. Philly gets the ball back, goes down the field, scores again. So all that time, the Kansas City offense was off the field. Right. They lost the possession because their defense scored. So that's two consecutive possessions that they were on the field. Because remember, they're driving. They're almost at midfield uh, after the score. And after the three and out, on, on uh, uh, the, the one KC for three and out. And they're on their way to scoring again. Then comes the fumble, the scoop and score. So the offense doesn't go back on the field. Philly gets the ball back. They go on the field to score and guess. So they're off the field. Then it's a long stretch of time right. they were off the field. So the fumble really built to the, the time of possession because it, you know they scored without having to go on offense. Um, so I think they kind of skewed the numbers. But yes, the Philadelphia defense was the biggest appointment of the game. Well, there was there was the two plays that kind of opened everybody's eyes to it, and it was something that 
was released a little bit later on Twitter after the game where the Jaguars actually ran this type of motion play where they have their running back kind of pretend he's going to run in front of the quarterback. They snap the ball. He stops. He runs the other direction and he's wide open. Well, Eric Bieniemy, who for whatever reason still can't get an NFL health coaching position job, which is great. He noticed this and they practiced this for two weeks. Hey, when we run this guy in motion, the defender is going to go with him. And if he stops and goes, there's nobody around. Well, we see it first happen with, it was a Tommy ran it on the right side of the field, mm-hmm. wide open where you're looking around like, was there a flag? Are we going to see a blatant hold where somebody just got tackled? Did they slip in the end zone because of the paint? Nope. Was there Wide an offensive? Was there an illegal? Yeah, did he throw somebody to the ground? Like something had happened. No, nope. clean play. Next time down, other side of the field, like they were playing Madden video game, and they just hit reverse the play. Same situation, Sky Moore, wide open, touchdown. And then it comes out, they're not even in the right formation. The call was there. The guys weren't lined up right. Mahomes somehow figures it out still, and he's still wide open. They could have ran that ring around the rosy deal that they do in the formation, blindfolded, still threw it to Mahomes. He would have found a way dizzy and drunk to throw it over his head, and Travis Kelsey somehow would have been wide open in the end zone still. That's the kind of luck that this Chiefs offense has. They're not in the right formation. They should call a timeout. The play's broke. Sky Moore's wide open. Those two plays were so wide open for the defense where you're looking around like, what are the Eagles defense doing? How did you have that happen in the Jaguars game and not think, well, let's make sure that doesn't happen again. That was kind of embarrassing, right? Two drives in a row, two touchdowns. They they obviously did a great job with halftime adjustments. And secondly, um, two weeks. Two weeks for Andy Reid to prepare. Two weeks. That's a lot of time. And, and he is, look, in Philly, he was a great offensive coach. There were issues with clock management. There were issues with decisions down the stretch of games. That all seems to be gone. <laughs> he seems to have uh, really taken control of the situation with respect to clock management, late game decision making. Uh, you don't see those issues anymore. And look, he's, he's an offensive genius. It's as simple as that. You want to call him the modern day Bill Walsh if you want to do that? Point is, and obviously it helps to have a great quarterback. You know, Walsh had one of the four or five best ever. I thought by a minute it would be the best ever you know, until Brady. And you know, now they're calling Mahomes on the way to being the best ever. Um, so you got to have the tools, but you also got to know uh, what to do with them. And there's nobody better than putting the tools in place. Uh, and even though this year the box didn't have them all, uh, he found some new ones. You know, Kadarius Tony, kudos to the front office for – I don't want to say stealing him from the Giants, but he obviously had been a disappointment. First round pick out of Florida. He was nothing short of brilliant for the Chiefs, not only during the season, but this game. Uh, let's not forget the punt return. Let's not forget the 65 or there, thereabouts yard punt return, yep. almost for a touchdown, that set them up for the nearly back-to-back score. At They score three and out, bad punt, line drive punt, awful kick. Starts to the left, reverses his field, takes it all the way to the five. And that resulted, I believe, in the Sky Moore touchdown. You can check me on that. 
uh, because my memory's not what it used to be, but I believe that was the Sky Moore touchdown. And that was a huge play in this game. And Tony obviously you know, was uh, you know, excellent in terms of, uh, of, of receiving as well. Mahomes used all his, all his weapons. Travis Kelsey had a big first half, quiet second half. And Mahomes has shown that even though Kelsey is his guy, he has the ability to look elsewhere uh, to make this offense work and you know, put Andy Reid's playbook uh, into effect with whomever his receivers are going to be. And you know, a lot of it was Schuster. A lot of it was Tony. Uh, a little bit of Sky Moore. Did the victor go the spoils? It, it's the best coach and it's the best quarterback. When you got the best coach, you got the best quarterback, it's a tough combo to beat. And against the best defense in the league, which they were all year, and they beat up the two teams they played in the playoffs, granted with you know a young giant team, first time back in the playoffs in forever, and a very rough and tough San Francisco team with a third-string quarterback for – part of the game and a disabled third string quarterback for the rest of the game. They beat them up. They physically abused them. They played havoc in the backfield. Uh, they made beelines to the passer. They knocked the passer down, out, up, down, all around. They couldn't lay a glove on Patrick Mahomes. And every time it looked like they would, Mahomes magic. He somehow, some way, despite the excruciating pain and the fact that, you know, he probably should have been in a boot. He managed to find a way to battle through the agony uh, and drag that injured leg for first downs in big spots, set up a touchdown, set up the field goal uh, that clinched the Super Bowl. Just an amazing job by an amazing player. Uh, obviously, I'm being facetious with respect to the injury, but of course, he wasn't at 100%. But <laughs> I guess that means that uh, normally he's at about 140% versus everybody else because he, he played a brilliant game. Brilliant game. Uh, he was accurate. He was on time. He used everybody, ran what he had to, uh, and he didn't force any throws. He didn't make that mistake. Uh, you almost, you know, there, there was one little shovel pass he tried to sneak in under pressure that could have been picked off. He got away with that. And other than that, they didn't have anything close to a turnover. So when you play that well, chances are you're going to win. They did, and they did. We've talked about this on the show before because Patrick Mahomes has had so much success since we've started doing the show 177 episodes ago or wherever we're at. Count them. Split them. Does this performance move the Patrick Mahomes needle for you up in your top quarterbacks of all time list? Or does he still need to do more? Slash, are we okay? being okay with not having to crown him as whatever it is because he's just five years into his career and we can just wait until he plays things out a little bit more because you could argue, and it might not even be an argument anymore, if he were to walk away from the game tomorrow, he's a first ballot Hall of Fame quarterback. As crazy as that is to sound after just playing football for five years, but you're well-versed in the quarterbacks of all time game. Did this do anything yet for you in the ranking system of where he stands all time? Well, I can't do all-time rankings because he's 
you know, his career is still in progress and the career is still in its infancy. I agree with you. If he were, he were to retire tomorrow, it would be a Gail Sears like entry in the Hall of Fame without the injury because there's no down years here. So he would be a first ballot Hall of Famer if he were to retire tomorrow. We know that's not going to happen. Hopefully, there's a lot of years left for him. He is certainly on his way to being one of the top quarterbacks in the history of the sport. Again, weighing everything in terms of dice, where the defenses are not allowed to do nearly the things that they were allowed to do against some of the prior great quarterbacks that I had the pleasure of watching play going as, as far back as the great Roger Staubach and, of course, Terry Bradshaw and Dan Marino and Joe Montana and John Elway. And more recently for you kids, you know, Peyton Manning, of course, and the greatest of all time, uh, sought by, thought by everyone now, Tom Brady. But you know, the guys I saw in their prime uh, were all as good as these guys. You could make an argument that there was nobody ever better in, in terms of a big game or you know, making chicken shit and chicken salad than Roger Staubach. He was Captain Comeback. He was Captain America. Uh, he was a brilliant athlete. He was a great scrambler. He was a great quarterback, won two Super Bowls. Uh, Terry Bradshaw was 4-0. Uh, he was the overall number one pick in the draft. It took a while to develop. He was a great thrower of the football. Big, strong guy. More of a, a brute runner than a real scrambler. Great arm. Great deep ball thrower. Montana was, you know, Joe Cool. He wasn't incredibly big or incredibly strong. He didn't have the arm of a Bradshaw. He didn't have the arm of an Elway. He didn't have the arm of a Marino. He reminded you a little bit more of my, you know, Joe Burrow, the way he threw it, threw it, threw it, because it never seemed like it was a rocket, but it always got there. It was always accurate. And he was very elusive, but he was elusive like Joe Burrow is. He wasn't running over people. He wasn't running for 70-yard touchdowns. You know, you never got a clean look. You never got a, a clear shot. You never really got to haul off and blast him. He would find a way to dance uh, out of trouble and either make time for the throw or, you know, get that first down by a yard. A lot of times you see Mahomes do that. Where, you know, you see him dance out of trouble. Now he's more athletic. He's faster. Uh, than Montana was, although Montana was a very good athlete. Um, but you know, Mahomes is becoming very has become very adept at scrambling away from pressure and getting to that yard marker. Burrow does it too. You know, with now they stick, they never used to stick the ball out the way they do now and get the benefit of that. Uh, where you went out of bounds with the ball is where the ball was. Not where you stuck the ball out. You know, if you your 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 foot was you know a yard and a half behind it, and you angled it to the sideline. They never gave you that mark in the old days. But the point is, um, you know, Elway was heroic. He was incredibly athletic. He had an arm like a rocket, not as accurate as a Marino or a Montana or uh, you know, a, uh, a Peyton Manning. But he was, you know, he, he was John Wayne riding in on the horse uh, with the great rally, the great comeback. And then finally won his two Super Bowls after losing three. Marino was as good a thrower of the football as I have ever seen. Quick release, dynamic, ball out in a heartbeat, arm like a rocket, accurate, brilliant. Didn't run much, 
obviously later on with the injuries, didn't run at all and was more of a, uh, I don't want to say statue, but more Brady S, so to speak, in the pocket. He wasn't moving much, but the ball came out so quick, you know, it was gone before a lot of the times the pass rush could get there. And he was brilliant. Only went to one Super Bowl. Lost to the great Niner team in uh, 84. Never got back. Never got back. Could never get by the Bills in the AFC. And then obviously, you know, you've had since then, of course, Manning. And you've had Brady. And you have Aaron Rodgers, who is probably the greatest combination of uh, accuracy, arm strength, and athleticism. Uh, of those guys recently, you know, more so than Brady, obviously, more so than Manning in terms of athleticism and the ability to scramble uh, with an incredible arm, incredible accuracy. And who, like Marino, it just came like a rocket with just the flick. The ball didn't even have to be taken back. Somehow, someway, the release was so quick and the arm would just go up and it would shoot out. And now you have this kid who seems to be able to do literally all of the above. He's a great scrambler. He's an incredible athlete. He's got a big time arm. He's accurate. He can make every throw in the book and some throws that we've never seen anybody make before. No look throws, sidearm throws, angled throws. If he keeps it up and again, Remembering that the numbers are all against defenses that these guys never had the opportunity to see. And by that, I mean Elway, Marino, Montana, Bradshaw, Staubach, you know, even Favre to some degree. You could light those guys up. You could beat up their receivers. You could grab, you could clutch, you could hold. You didn't have the five-yard chuck rule. Uh, you know, you could play bump and run. You literally could bump the guy, contact the guy, chuck and jive the guy all over the field until the ball was in the air. Couldn't hold him. Couldn't grab him. But you could absolutely parry him, chuck him, chip him until the ball was in the air. Much different world. Much different world. Obviously. So you didn't have back shoulder throws. When guys did ran out, they, they, they weren't over the back shoulder. They were down, out, and the ball was to the sidelines, and you were breaking to the ball, not turning to the ball. If you're going hard down the left sideline, you're, you're, you're making your hard step in, then you're cutting out, and you are cutting out where your right shoulder is to the defender, and your left shoulder opens up. Now it's the reverse. With the back shoulder throw, the throw's coming over the right shoulder. You're turning in the other direction. That's how much the game has changed in terms of, you know, the offense and the style of throws and the receivers. Your back shoulder throws are, you know, not something that has been around very long at all. Back shoulder throws is, you know, the last 10, 15 years. Back shoulder throws used to be throws that were behind the receiver. Now it's the way it's designed. And, it's just a totally different offensive world because people want to see offense. All that put into context because somebody's got to be the greatest of all time. He is on a avenue. He 
He is on a road, which if he continues to go down it, and that doesn't mean he's got to win as many Super Bowls as Tom Brady. He does have to go to a bunch of them. You know, if, if Patrick Mahomes goes to, you know, eight Super Bowls or nine Super Bowls and wins five of them, the way he's playing, it's going to be hard not to make an argument that he's the greatest of all time. And that's the best way I can I can put it right now. Five years in. That was well said and summarized. I think it's just crazy that there's the sentence that can be said where he's on pace for greatest of all time just five years in. Because history is against you in so many different aspects of it. Scrambling quarterback, head coach being a Hall of Famer, eventually you assume he's going to step down. What your defense does, what your line does, how your body holds up, your wide receivers, your running backs, every scenario is against you. Plus, you're playing in the conference and in a division where you're going up against potential future Hall of Famers as well. All the good quarterbacks are in the AFC, seemingly. Most of them. It's crazy, the talent that he has to go up against in the regular season, then postseason, and then obviously in the Super Bowl. We've mentioned the ride to the Super Bowl hasn't been as bumpy with the home field that they've been able to acquire. I'm sure that's something that might change. One of those situations where let's see what you do with a 9-8 and eight team now. Having to play in a wild card game, then a divisional game, then an AFC championship, then a Super Bowl. We always well, want to see the next hill climbed over let, when let, these guys let's start at, doing stuff. Let's, you know? let's at least see him play a few playoff games on the road. Doesn't have to be nine, you don't have to be nine and eight, but let's just see once in a while you win a championship game. And look, I'm not knocking again, I'm not knocking the accomplishments, but you know, it would be another accomplishment to win a playoff game or a championship game in somebody else's building. I agree. It just helps all with that, your resume. All, all that being said, five years in, three trips to the Super Bowl. Crazy. Two championships, five conference championship games in a row. Correct? Yep. Five. Correct? Five in a row. I think it's safe to say whether you want to be a critic, whether you want to be a fan, whether you want to call them the greatest of all time already, whether you don't, whatever you want to say, there's one thing you can't argue against. The dude is crazy fucking good. <laughs> and that's the bottom line. And we were talking about it before we got on here that he hasn't gotten to the level of LeBron James type of hatred. He's still well-liked amongst just casual fans. He says the right things. He does the right things. The only things you can really nitpick him on is TikTok brother. That's all we have. And it's not nice to go after somebody's family. So you don't do that. You have to go by his play in the field. There's not much to go by with that either. Speaking he loves drinking which, Coors Lights. I mean, what, what do you say? <laughs> speaking of which, going after, uh, I wanted Joe Juju Smith-Schuster potentially as a free agent in Baltimore. I don't fucking watch anymore, okay? <laughs> Stay in your TikTok, yeah. tweeting fucking world, because what you did to Bradbury was Bush League 100%. Yeah, you know, uh, look, the guy handled it well. He said it was a hold. You have to throw salt in the wounds by doing that? Come on, man. I mean, show me some, some 
notion of class. Didn't Mike Tomlin raise you better? Didn't Mike Tomlin teach you losing sucks, but you lose with class, and it's even harder sometimes to win with class? And I can't think of more of a Bush League move from a cat who won a championship and played a huge role in it and specifically a play that was a big factor in it than to do that. You know, with the whole Twitter world watching. That was completely, in my mind, inappropriate. It was unprofessional. I know these guys are always kidding each other, et cetera, but I, I just thought it was totally and completely out of line. And, you know, uh, if I was if I was Bradbury's teammate, I'd be on this guy like a cheap suit. Next time he came across the middle, I'd be looking to clean him out. Clean, clean, but I'd be looking to take him out. And I don't mean concuss him. I mean, I'd be looking to put my shoulder in his bread basket and knock the wind clear out of him. That shit ain't right. That shit ain't right. You know, especially after he stood up for it. He stood up before the press at his locker. He took all the questions and said, yeah, I held him. I grabbed him. Uh, I was hoping the ref wouldn't call it. He called it. Yeah. Should he have been wearing the same color gloves as the jerseys the Chiefs were wearing? Yes. Okay. Never wore dark gloves when the opponents were in a white jersey. <laughs> Match the color. But, uh, yeah, for, and, you know, old school, old report, show some class. Bush League. Agreed. And I'm, I was, it was funny when A.J. Brown kind of called him out for it. You were out of the league before Mahomes resurrected your career on your one-year deal, TikTok boy. <laughs> good job, AJ. Very good. Good job. That'll come to your teammates' head. That's what that's what a good teammate does. Yeah. Lastly, for last Sunday, any interest in Rihanna's halftime performance? Any commercials stick out? Any good food outside the game? Uh, well, the best part of halftime was the ending. I couldn't wait till it was over because I'm not a, <laughs> not a big fan. Rihanna fan. The old report on the show. I'm surprised. I, I, I'm not a Rihanna fan to begin with. Uh, she's too tall. Number one. Was she a seven footer or so? Could she dunk it? Um, she's angular to say the least. I know she's pregnant. Or so it seems. Uh, announced into the world. I, I thought. I haven't followed up on that, but it certainly yeah, she like is. It. Her publicist came out after the performance and said she was indeed. She was trying to show people and like just sure her like stomach, it. but the camera sure like, like never was at the right angle or shot to have it be really noticeable. So but shame part on her. Of the problem for me is is I'm I'm just not a fan. Well, you know, yeah, I, it's, I'm it's sure she's got time. a nice voice, but you know her songs. I wouldn't know one if it bit me in the ass. <laughs> I don't understand why you need, you know, there's one thing to be, you, know, you can look this up, folks, Jackie Gleason, the June Taylor dancers. There were about you know, 30 of them. What were there? 600 guys on the stage. I mean, I, I lost count at 97. How many guys were up there? Um, it, it was pretty much what I thought it was going to be. Um, and it, it was, it was very, there was a big show. You know, it, it was a show. To see, it, it was quite an extravaganza, uh, but it does nothing for me because you know I'm, her music does nothing for me, and uh, you know 
the simple I'm being as polite as I can. I just, it doesn't float my boat. Yeah. What can I tell you? Uh, from the commercial standpoint, I thought they were pretty mediocre. Uh, the two that stood out for me, because I'm a huge Ben Affleck and for Lopez fan, I love them both. I love their commercial with Dunkin' Donuts. I thought that was hysterical uh, because he's great at poking fun of himself and, and she is too. Uh, so I thought that was really good. And my other favorite one was the, because as you know, I'm a dog fanatic. The Amazon commercial, turned out to be Amazon, where the dog is playing with everybody in the family, the kids, the mom, the dad, the house is full, then they're going and they're going to work and they're going to school and all of a sudden he's by himself. And then they show various events where he's basically ripping the house to shreds when he's by himself. The last of which he comes down with you know, a picture in his mouth. And uh, it looks like they're looking for a crate for the dog. You know, you think it's the right size. And oh, this poor dog now is going to be crated. He's not going to be able to just run in the house. And no, they open up the crate and it's a puppy to keep the dog, the, you know, the current dog company. And then they show them down together. It's my kind of commercial. I was disappointed. Justin and I were waiting for the, for the, uh, the annual visit from the Clydesdales. We didn't see them. Uh, I didn't see any Budweiser yeah, commercials, nothing. only Bud Light. And that's always a disappointment because the Budweiser commercials are always great. So those are my two. Rihanna is one of the soundtracks of my collegehood. A lot of her songs blasting at the bar for several of those years. So she's got a special place in my heart, obviously. We're the demographic for that, us millennials. So they hit us right in the heartstrings. I wish there was more something. I was hoping maybe somebody else would come out that she's collaborated with or we would get something a little bit different. I mean, her catalog by itself speaks for itself. It was fine for her to just sing what she's done, but you're always kind of so. peeking around the corner. Now, who like, would oh, you be looking? Out? Who would you be looking? Let's see if there's maybe any chance I might know the person you're going to name. <laughs> name someone you would have hoped to come out and collaborate with her. Well, the biggest one would probably be Jay-Z for Umbrella, Ella, L-A, Drake, Eminem. Okay, well, I know all them. Sean Paul. Are they, are they, are, who? Sean Paul was an early one that she used to s- collaborate with. He would well, do they, does she collaborate with either of those first three legends? Yeah, she's done songs with all three okay. of them. Okay. All right. Well, let's see, I didn't know. See, that shows you how little I know about her. Um, now, do we have do we have a height on her? Five eight, from what I saw on the old internet. Five eight. That's yeah. all. Maybe it was because she was on that platform, seventeen feet in the air, wherever the hell it was. Well, no, I, I think what does it for me is when the promos, she had that hairdo yeah. where her hair was another foot taller. Yeah. So it looked like she was about six eight. Yeah. No, the music so was she, great. I just thought, and I mean, I'm sure this planning goes on for probably. 364 days like after the Super Bowl ends the next day is immediately all right who are we getting next well how are we going to do everything and then halfway through when she goes hey not only am I postpartum I'm pregnant again well all right well we can't have her come in on an elephant or whatever we were going to do like have an Aladdin entrance for her to get into the stadium we won't be able to do that we'll just have to put her up there and make sure she doesn't fall strap her in so now uh, maybe they had other things let's see how well informed the new report is on the halftime entertainment. How much do you think she got paid for that? Zero dollars. Very good. I am shocked 
to have learned and to now know. I forget. They do not get paid. They don't get paid. They do not get paid. Crazy. Their their support group. You know, they get the expenses paid, and their support group get union union wages. You know, like the guys who are the, they're, they're, they're dancers and dancing. And I don't know what the backup people do, but you know, the dancers, etc. Um, nobody, none of the stars get paid to perform. I had heard a rumor, or not a rumor, I had seen that the last performer to get paid was maybe Madonna when she did the Super Bowl show. But since then, it's out of pocket and you just kind of profit from what happens after that, mm-hmm. which, I mean, hey, in today's streaming world, when you shoot up on the Billboard charts 10 years after your songs actually came out because a new generation's hearing them again, that's free advertising, man. And it's not like... At least for Rihanna's case, she's not scraping the bottom of the barrel for money. When she put on that makeup to first start everything before she started to sing, her profits and her advertising and her clicks for her makeup brand went up 8,833% or something like that (laughs) for the three seconds that she just looked at herself in the mirror and kind of tidied up. Crazy. How many people are the watching same thing, this game? Same thing happens. It's the same scenario for me. My brand just... Yeah, of course. Multiplying two and threefold, just from this show alone. Just imagine, like, two seconds worth of the name of our show at the bottom of the screen at any time during the game. What would happen? Millions of people coming to listen to the show. What you are mean these millions, mil- millions more. Millions on top more, of the, exactly, On top of the right. millions that already listen. We'd go from the third most watched... Super Bowl game and TV history to mash level of success, if you will. Exactly. Before we get out of here, I wanted to ask you about these new MLB rule changes that are coming in 2023 and not just like, oh, we'll try them out in spring training and then we'll kind of see how it goes. They're coming out guns ablazing right out of the way. Now, now remember, remember, these have all been used and put into effect in the minor leagues. So a lot of the younger players – uh, are used to a pitch clock, have been accustomed to it. Uh, none have been accustomed to the pizza box bases, yep. uh, which the Red Sox manager referred to them as the other day. And they did like look that. a lot like pizza boxes. I like that. That's a good one. I, I'm, I'm, I don't know if they're going to be that flat. Jeez, I hope not, because they do look like pizza boxes. Uh, but we've got you know, the pitch clock. We've got the bigger bases. We've got uh, the rule I do not like, which is the third move over to first base, you better pick them off or it's a balk. Yeah, limit to two pickoff attempts per batter, which seems like that's not going to be a great idea, you would think, right? For guys that steal? Okay, he threw over twice. I could could run halfway down the line now, as long as the catcher doesn't throw it out. Just get the the one-way lead the first couple times, draw the throw, and I'm so far off that, boom. Okay, on the third time, once I see the move, I'm, I'm I'm off. You know, once I once I know he's going to the plate, I'm off. Well, yeah, that's kind uh, of the same thing for the pitch clock potentially. If you're a runner, where you're watching the pitch clock and thinking, well, he's got to get into his windup now, or it's going to be a ball. So let me go. You could use it to your advantage at some points, but continue. And you know, obviously, along with the pitch clock, the other biggest change is going to be. Uh, I'm not going to call it the banning of the shift because you can still shift. Mm-hmm. You just can't shift to the other side of second base. Right. So, uh, you know, a second baseman against the right-handed pull hitter can play 
uh, behind the bag, but he's got to stay he's behind the bag over to his side, and he must be on the dirt. And for the left-handed pull hitter, the shortstop has to do the same thing. You can't go past the invisible wall at second base. No third baseman, okay, uh, over in right field, in short right field, et cetera. Um, I think it's really going to help a lot of the dead left-handed pull hitters who hit line drives into short right field for outs, who pull hard ground balls into the hole where there's usually no one. Uh, it's going to make a big difference, I think. But you know, we won't know until we see it. I'm not thrilled about having to start on the dirt because I have no problem. A lot of shortstops like to play two or three, start two or three feet out of the grass and then come in. I have no problem with a second baseman against a big right-handed, a big left-handed pull hitter who's not fleet of foot playing, you know, 10 feet back on the grass. I used to do it. Um, I don't have a big problem with that, but you can't do it anymore. You got to start on the dirt. So those are the biggest changes. Uh, you know, will the hitters just go on their merry way? Will they make any adjustments? Uh, they certainly couldn't adjust to the shift. So now that it's gone, will they just be happy to yank the same balls into what normally was into the shift? And you'll see all their numbers bump up. How will pitchers, uh, you know, approach it? will they not pitch inside as much because uh, you know, they don't want the ball pulled as much? as they have in the past because that shift isn't there to bail them out. They want to go way more. Uh, do guys who are dead pull hitters now say, I'm never going to go the other way now. I just yank that ball all right, to the right side. But you always talk about, you know, you take that outside pitch and try to pull it, you roll it over and it's the weak round ball. So very curious to see how it's going to affect the hitters and the pitchers uh, from the defensive standpoint. Range is going to be more important than ever, especially at second base, because that helper is gone, because the biggest assistance is on the right side. Uh, yes, you can put more guys on the left side, but it's still tougher to throw guys out from all the way over there, you know, from way in that shortstop hole. That's why I didn't see it that often with a guy in short left field. But you, know, you see guys get thrown out in short right field all the time because the throw is shorter. Uh, now the second baseman's got to cover all that ground. So it's going to be, we think, a bigger premium on range, speed, and athleticism. Uh, again, we'll see if it favors, you know, the defensive players who have greater range and greater athleticism, especially in the middle infield, and you know, how the hitters adjust to it. Those analytical nerds are going to, it's going to be like Christmas morning this first season documenting the middle infield and how they right. fare now and now that the shift is over and the Joey and, Gallows of the world, how they're hitting the baseball now. And and the other thing that you're going to have to keep in mind now, how do we look at the numbers? Yeah. Are all the numbers new? We have all these different rules now. The same way in the NFL, well, you, know, you can't touch the guy. How do we look at the passing rules now? In the NBA, you know, the three-point shot, you know, the way it's defended, the frequency with which it's taken, you know, are, are all our points slanted? Well, will all our numbers now be slanted because you know before you were hitting into the shift, and now will all these inflated numbers be the result of the fact that you can't shift anymore? When again, you could always shift. There's been shifts for 80 years. They used to shift against Ted Williams, you know, in the 40s and in the 50s. But they just didn't do it against everybody. 
but everybody's become such a dead pull hitter because you want to hit bombs and you want to yank the ball instead of going the other way that they shift against pretty much everybody. Not exaggerated, but to some degree, you know, you don't see too many guys played straight away. But the point is, what does it do to our numbers? Now you're going to tell us we're going to see with all the analytics what was a hit this year wouldn't have been hit last year. Because we see all the time guys who hit into the shift, ground ball percentage against the shift, you know, what their average would be without the shift. So I'm sure the analytics guys are going to drive us nuts with their alphabet soup and their, you know, their, their algorithms, et cetera, uh, you know, which is just going to, the Keith Laws of the world will put me to sleep like he always does. But it's going to be some interesting changes. And for the regular season, you are still starting with the ghost runner, the uh, commissioner runner at second base, the, the rob runner at second base. Uh, in the top of the 10th inning to try and keep games from going deep into extra innings and try and keep games from having, you know, utility infielders picked in the 17th inning. Uh, so that is going to remain. It will not be part of the postseason, but it will be part of the regular season. Pitch clock, no shift, bigger bases, two moves to first, and then all bets are up. Pick him off or he's gone. So those are your big changes. And last but not least, folks, remember, new schedule. Yeah. No more 73 games against every team in your division. You know, Judge doesn't get to play against the Orioles pitching 27 times a year anymore. You are playing much more of a balanced schedule uh, where they've reduced the number of games that you play in your division uh, and expanded the number of games that you play against the rest of the teams in your league and from an interleague perspective. I think it's going to be much better. It's something I've been pushing for for years to no one who ever listens to me. So me pushing good amount to the beans, but it is a schedule that I have been in favor of for a long time. It's not the exact breakout that I wanted, but I never thought you should be playing your division opponents 18 times a year. That's too many, way too many, 18 times. I got to watch the Yankees and the Red Sox play 18 fucking four hour games. Well, once you bring interleague into play and make that a thing, you got to embrace it, right? You can't still go back to that well of, well, we got to play the division. Do you, though? Not anymore. Have a little fun with it, man. I mean, we know baseball and its marketing is a sin, but now you get to market. We're playing everybody, basically. Coming across the country to a stadium near you, any team USA. It's going to be exciting. I think it's going to be terrific. Everybody's going to get to see everybody. Right. Finally. That's going to be cool. Market it and let's grow the fucking game for once. You're going to get all the stars being able to play against the other stars. Uh, look, I, I think I think they got this one absolutely right. I've been clamoring yeah. it for a long time. Long time. I think it's much better to play. Yes, you play your teams in your division the most, but not nearly as you know as much as you were playing. You know, you were playing the teams in your division more than twice as much as you were playing everybody else in your league. Right. And some years it's brutal when one of those teams is down. What are we doing? What disappoints me is the continuation of the runner on second and extras. I'm a stan of the Boog Shiambi rule of we get to the 12th and nobody scores, just call it a tie. 
Well, no, you can't have ties. Okay, I know you ate you it. You can't. Just I, I would be okay with that rule kicking into place. I was going to say, I'd be fine with the 12th comes, then you put the runner on. Okay. Right. Give them 12th a couple innings to figure it out. It's okay. There's 12th to 13th, exactly. But, you know, push come the shove. I, I can even live with this yeah, I, if I have right. to. In the regular season, just I never, you can never have it in the postseason. I'm excited or optimistic about the pitch clock. Minor league games do clearly go a lot faster when you're there with the pitch clock implemented, and they've had it for so long that it doesn't impede the game. There's no awkwardness. Very rarely does it actually impact anything. What I hope is that that doesn't become something that turns into the hold against the Eagles in a big game in September where it's the ninth and it's a tight environment, couple guys on base, deep into the count, and the pitch clock goes off, ball, the guy walks. And, and, and strikes, the guy's exactly. not in the box in time. You know, and in a big moment, and it's going to happen. It's, it's bound to happen. In, in, in big, important, pressure-packed baseball situations, that's the thing that I've talked to you about, I've talked to you know, friends i've talked to you know, chris russo about who, you know, who love baseball at that stage of the proceedings you don't care how long anything takes right and you know you that, don't notice that, that, that moment all you are doing is holding your breath right if it's your guy on the mound you literally are holding your breath for the entire time that he's got that ball in his hand and he's going to the rosin bag and he's mopping his brow, and he's taking his cap off, putting it back on, looking in for the signal, and asking the catcher to roll him again, or he can't hear the signals in the new, whatever you want to call the thing. Uh, the What do they call it? Like little beepers for yeah, plants yeah, in the whatever 90s. Okay. Um, he can't hear it. You know, he can't hear it. Uh, he needs a new earpiece. <laughs> Forget the new earpiece routine. But the point is, that, that pressure-packed moment where he's got to throw a strike, where you know, if the other guy puts it in play, your team's going to be damaged, where you desperately need a strikeout, or you need a double play, or you need that pop-up, and you're living in just second-to-second -second fear, that, that's the best part of baseball. Yep, That is absolutely, positively, the best part of baseball, where you just want to freeze the moment. You don't care how long anything takes. And I don't think any umpire is going to step in and call a ball at that point I in time because, because you just can't. Again, sense of time and place, sense of importance, let the players decide the game. And I wouldn't be opposed to, in the postseason, shut off the clocks or yeah, shut them off from the seventh inning onward, something along those lines or when it's going to be the most pressure-packed moment. We're not not only holding our breath at home or at the game, we're holding our breath for the moment and we're glancing at the clock like, oh shit, he's got to throw it. He's got to throw it. He's got to throw it. There's one second left. Go, go. That's not how you want baseball to be where it's like a, the shot clock in basketball where you're screaming, shoot it. You got to put it up. In those moments, no rush. it's okay to take 10 more no, seconds, man. No, no rush. No, no rush. rush. So that's going to be the interesting part when we get into those moments and the calls happen, either they're not called or they are, it's going to be a talking point. There's no way around it. So we'll just have to see how it gets handled. It's going to be 
one that you hope doesn't happen in the game's most important moments, but it's definitely going to. It's just going to be a matter of who's first, and then when something happens, will it need to be a discussion to tweak it or change it? We'll see. I, I am sure, again, that there will be modifications if necessary because baseball has shown that they will do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm hoping in the beginning it's not enforced to the letter of the law, Uh, you know, that it's enforced for those who seek to abuse it, forget about it, uh, refuse to comply with it until they do comply with it. But, you know, a, a guy who is, you know, getting ready to turn it loose and is, as the clock hits, you know, I, I, I'm not waving off that. I'm not waving off that pitch because the, you know, it, it hits zero as he's you know going into his delivery. Good enough. And I think Good some enough. of it is okay to put on the umpires, and you've probably played with this. I mean, there's umpires. You step out of the box, they'll tell you, hey, get back in the box. Right. And that's not a rule, but they'll tell you, get in. Let's go. Move it along. They'll do it get to in. the pitcher. They'll do, do the get little in. swirly thing like they're trying to get the replay reviewed in a basketball game. Let's go. Move it along. Too much time. And you do it. The umps can kind of control the game in that sense, too, where you don't just have to be focused on the clock. And it'll be interesting to see where the clock is. Is that going to be something that's on the scoreboard that we're watching at home? Are they going to have a little ticker going in the bottom where the balls and strikes and outs are to kind of keep that track? Or is it just going to be like it's just off the camera view from what we see at home when we're watching the pitcher throw to the batter, but they can see it on the field? It'll be interesting to see how they kind of play it up if they do. But for oh, a, think, you know, a two well, and a half think, hour game in the summer, Al, where do I sign? When it's like eight five, we get out at a decent hour. I'm all for it. It's just going to be a matter of I think you'll see it you know, just like you see the play clock uh, and the shot clock. But just like you see the play clock in the NFL where they show you the play clock you know, in the lower portion of the screen so you can see it. I think you'll see it you know, in MLB. I think they'll show you the pitch clock. Superimpose it when it gets down to five. Yeah, or they'll put it in red on the screen. Or they'll have like a ticker that you would hear before a bomb goes off, like the beeps. (laughs) Oh, no, he's got to throw it. Have a little fun with it. I don't think I want it in red. Yeah. You know, I don't want it. I don't want it to be the glowing puck. I don't want it. (laughs) I don't want it to take away from the game. Um, But quickly before we go. Uh, we're running late, but let's just tip our caps and say thank you and rest in peace to the great Tim McCarver who left us today. 81 years of age, um, all-star, world champion, Hall of Fame broadcaster uh, for four decades. All four major networks, uh, Mets, Yankees, Cardinals, uh, as an announcer, taught a lot of people the game was a fierce competitor, was a fabulous broadcaster, a great analyst, uh, one-third of the greatest baseball booth in modern history, the greatest three-man baseball booth uh, on ABC in the 80s with the great Al Michaels, Hall of Famer Jim Palmer, uh, lifetime Oriole, Hall of Fame starting pitcher, and McCarver, the catcher. You've got the great perspective. You had the brilliant announcer in between the Hall of Fame pitcher and the world champion catcher. It was fabulous. It was the best we've ever heard in terms of a three-man booth for baseball. Uh, he was great with the Mets. He was fabulous on Fox uh, with Joe Buck, on CBS with Jack Buck, um, you know, on NBC 
uh, he, he, he did them all. He followed or, or the networks followed him, whichever we want to put it. When baseball went from network to network, they brought in Tim McCarver, you know, to, to be the analyst. And some people thought he, you know, he talked too much or was a little overbearing. I thought he was great. He was not afraid to be critical. He also announced the game, not just for people who knew it, but knew he was talking to people who didn't know the game that well, especially in a big time stage and would lay things out for them so they could understand it. Uh, he was a baseball lifer. He was funny. He had a great sense of humor. He could laugh at himself. Uh, he let the game be the game and he had a great passion for the game and he was great at what he did. He will be sorely mass missed and he was absolutely positively, you know, a national treasure. You turned on an important baseball game and it was Joe Buck and Tim McCarver for my generation of baseball fans for the time that the two of them were in the booth. It just was a feeling of being home, in a sense. It was World Series baseball. It was playoff baseball. Here it goes. Tim McCarver, Joe Buck, you knew you were about to watch something important. As a Yankees fan, I obviously didn't agree with a lot of what he said. (laughs) We jokingly say, and I'm sure a lot of fan bases joke with Tim McCarver that he hated our favorite team, and he was always against us on the call. So much so, my father used to joke he'd mute the TV and go find the radio and listen to it on there instead so John Sterling and Susan Waldman could call the game instead of Tim McCarver, who always had something negative to say about the Yankees. But you respected what he did. You respected what he did as a player for as long as he played, and you got to be good at what you're doing for networks to want you to come with them whenever there's an opportunity to call a baseball game. He created a comfort zone. Absolutely. When Tim McCarr, you know, he made you feel comfortable. Just the way he approached the game, his demeanor, the way he, he talked to his partner, the way he talked to us, whether it was Joe Buck, whether it was Jack Buck, whether it was Sean McDonough, didn't matter who it was. You know, Ralph Kiner with the Mets, whoever he's doing the Yankee games with, not that it mattered. Um, but the, the point is he gave you a feeling of uh, – sit back and enjoy the game. Let's talk about it. Let's have fun with it. And I'm going to tell you what's going on. I'm going to explain it to you. And this is the best game in the world. And let's have fun with it. And he he just seemed so comfortable. He never forced it. He never seemed to try and make himself the star. You know, let the game breathe. He was great at it. He let the announcer announce the game. He let the play-by-play guy do the work. And he did his job. And he always had a great rapport with his with his play-by-play guy. You know, he never overspoke. He never had to tell you what was happening every pitch, John Smoltz. He never had to drown you in numbers, Tom Verducci. Now, I understand the analytics weren't nearly what they are today. But I don't need to know every ground ball ratio, every hard hit ratio, every swing and miss rate, and every pitch of every play. They just never stop. They never stop. Everything has to have a rhyme or reason. Every pitch has to have, you know, a strategy. Every let us figure something out. McCarver didn't treat us like we were. He announced the game for everybody, but in big spots where they knew there's a bigger audience, he would be a little more 
descriptive and a little more informative and a little more from a teaching standpoint. I think he took pride in that. These guys never stop. They never, ever, ever let up. It's just, you know, they got to be the star of the show. It's like, you know, it's like we can't see anything. We're watching the game on TV. It's like they're calling the game for you know, the blind to you know, for, for the blind. I understand some folks are there disabled, but but Jesus, you know, give us some credit for we have some idea of what we're saying. And McCarver never made you feel like he was trying to one up you. He was just trying to help you. And he always sounded like he was having fun. Maybe it was the Memphis, you know, uh, drawl. Because that's where he's from. So he has that little, he always had that kind of high-pitched Southern drawl. And he never failed to show when he was excited or flabbergasted by what he just saw. Uh, He was fun. But he was fun in not a clownish or disrespectful way to the game. he You could tell he thoroughly enjoyed what he was doing. And that's, <laughs> you know, the deal. You know, if you can find something you love and, and get paid for it, you know, it, it ain't work. And he took great pride in it. He had a passion for it. And it truly showed every time he was behind that microphone. And, of course, the famous story, him being a catcher for Bob Gibson went out there to the mound to talk to him one time. And Bob Gibson told him to get back behind the plate where he belonged. Cause the only thing he knew about pitching was that he couldn't hit. <laughs> he had stories. And as we said, it was just something where you turn that game on and it was a similar feeling to how you would feel listening to Vin Scully or Mel Allen or somebody that does your local radio where you hear Joe Buck or his dad, Tim McCarver, it's time for baseball. And it'll be weird not having that ever again. Joe Buck now no longer doing things for Fox. I mean, obviously, Tim McCarver has been retired for a little while. So the new voices will take over and a different generation will get to experience their own. But there's something about those duos where when the big games come, they're basically the voice of your sport in the greatest of moments. And he had so many of those, which is one thing that we'll remember him for, except when he predicted that Luis Gonzalez would get the game-winning hit off Mariano Rivera in Game 7 of the 2001 World Series. We didn't need that prediction, Tim. Well, he was just calling it. He was doing what he always did. You know, he called it like he saw it, and he could see it possibly coming. And uh, it wasn't just the game-winning hit. He said exactly where it was going to go Ugh. and how it was going to get there. <laughs> um, you know, Soothsayer, you know, he, look, he knew the game. From years of playing, years of experience, he was a terrific player. Uh, he played with Hall of Famers. Uh, caught Hall of Famers, watched Hall of Famers, and uh, announced numerous Hall of Famers. And uh, it was, from my perspective of being a Cardinal fan, watching him in the mid-60s, late-60s on those great Cardinal teams, um, and then be Steve Carlton's catcher. Uh, He jokingly said, you know, when you get – when we're both dead and gone, we're going to be buried 60 feet, six inches apart, which is one of the all-time classic lines uh, because he became Carlton's personal catcher. He had great respect for greatness as much as he loved Gibson and he loved Gibson. They were best friends. 
uh, one of his great lines is Joe Buck. I remember said that uh, Clayton Kershaw, who was starting that particular game uh, in the postseason, Joe Buck said, you know, the closest thing to Sandy Koufax and Tim McCarver's response was, I remember he caught Gibson was no one is close to Sandy Koufax. <laughs> That's the great respect he had for Koufax. Um, what can I say? I mean, we lost Billy Packer a couple of weeks ago. We lost Tim McCarver today. These are, these have been you know, two of the great voices of my sports lifetime for, you know, the last, you know, in terms of listening to them um, for, with respect to Billy Packer, you know, going about 45 years and, uh, 1970, about 45 years, and uh, or, or, or more, and uh, you know, with respect to Tim McCarver, certainly, you know, for mid eight, you know, from mid 80s on, so uh, you're getting close to 40 years there. So they're both gone, and they're both in a better place. But I sure am glad that uh, they were there for me for all those years. They certainly helped make the old report incredibly enjoyable. Uh, for their passion and their love for their respective sports. And uh, I will always remember both of them. So that wraps up the National Football League for a brief second in time. The NFL draft will be here before you know it, and the storylines will kick back up again. Quarterback carousel uh, coming, soon to, coming soon to a city near you. Thankfully, we could switch our focus to basketball and get closer to March Madness and that excitement as well. Al, it's always a pleasure. We'll do it again next week. For my partner, the great John Tiny Lund, I am El Renato AKL for my plants. Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll be back 8 p.m. Eastern time here on Sports Radio America. You can listen at sportsradioamerica.com and interact with the show there as well or find us on the TuneIn app by searching for Sports Radio America. You can also follow John Lund under the same handle on Twitter at London Bridge. Thanks again for listening.